Hello there, my friends. It has been a long time, but I am back. Oh, the show has been on a bit of a hiatus, a lot longer than I intended, to be honest. But real life and other things got in the way. But tangents abound has returned. And as with all good things, after a reboot, refresh, new coat of paint, got a new office, new podcast studio, still have my executive producer Harley, and now I have an intern, Dewey! (laughs) Oh, things have been so much fun around here. I want to just update you on the format of the show real quick. Uh, Normally, I would talk about a specific subject or maybe do a little series of different things. And, well, a lot of stuff I want to talk about usually involves current geek things and spoilers. And it got really, really depressing that I couldn't talk about that stuff. But... Uh, that's not what we're here for. So I just want to give you a real quick overview. Tangents abound. The individual, hey, this is what interested me. That's going to get a little refreshed um, and put, and it's not going away, but it's not going to be the main focus of the show for the foreseeable future. What is going to be the uh, main thrust of the show from here on out for, for the... F- <laughs> probably next, oh, I'd say two, three years, with a regular release schedule. <laughs> I promise. <laughs> I, I came prepared this time. <laughs> I learned. What we're going to be covering is Dewey, hit the lights, Harley, cue up the music, and the intro. You see, 001. It is now 2340 Greenwich Mean Time. We are about to witness the end of the world as we know it and usher in a new world as never before imagined. The Earth Federation government is about to host a ceremony at the Prime Minister's residence, Laplace, to celebrate the birth of a new era. The ingenuity of mankind has allowed us to move beyond Mother Earth and build worlds of our own to inhabit. Tonight, we'll mark the beginning of a new epoch. Let us come together in this joyous moment to honor the past, the era of Anno Domini, and greet the dawn of the universal century with open hearts and minds. UC 0050. Today marks the 50th anniversary of the universal century. As we continue our expansion into the last frontier with the completion of the Side 6 Space Colony Group and our lunar colonies, this now brings the total human population living in space to approximately 9 billion against 2 billion living on Earth. While some have commented that having such a vast discrepancy between these populations could lead to a severe class organization of Earth elitism against those living in space, Earth Federation spokesmen are quickly dismissing such concerns as a knee-jerk reaction by possible extremists intending to undermine the Earth Federation. UC 0058. Xeon Zoom Daikun has announced today the independence of the entire size of the space colony group from the Earth Federation. The Federation government has declared the move illegal and has refused to recognize the new government. UC 0068. And in other news, during a speech today, Xeon Zun Daikun collapsed and was immediately rushed to Rawl General Hospital. There, doctors officially declared his death shortly after arrival. Councilman Degawin Zabin has assumed de facto control of the government and asked the populace to remain indoors 
and pray for the loved ones as they undaiku during this period of mourning. And now, the weather. UC 0079. Earlier this year, the Principality of Xeon formally declared war on the Earth Federation. Massive military and civilian casualties have been incurred. We are getting details on the current fighting our sources have dubbed Operation British. We are waiting for word of... Just a moment. What? What? Oh my god. Uh, we're turning to our local correspondent in New Zealand for a live report. Oh my god, it's a colony. An entire colony is falling. The devastation will be unimaginable. All social media is being flooded with messages of people trying to evacuate the projected impact point of Sydney. But will there even be somewhere to evacuate to? Wait, I can see it now. It's Everyone shield your eyes! We will, we will try to keep broadcasting as- For the first time, humanity has brought war to the stars. Billions have died. Humanity is on the cusp of self-annihilation. A single weight on the scale can tip the balance between victory and defeat for the Earth Federation. There are rumors of a new weapon being developed to counter Xeon's mobile suit forces, but most consider them only to be simply that, rumors. But one thing is certain, humanity's future rests in space. This is the true story of the One Year War. The year is Universal Century 0079, and the flames of war burn bright and fierce. When the curtain falls, who will survive? Tangents Abound presents A Two True Freaks production White Base Chronicles Mobile Suit Gundam The Origin Manga Summary and Commentary Featuring your host, Aaron Henley So, welcome to the first episode of White Base Chronicles A index show covering the manga series Mobile Suit Gundam The Origin Now, I've listened to a lot of comic book podcasts, and, you know, on Two True Freaks, there are a ton of comic book podcasts, but I've never really come across any podcasts that cover a manga specifically from start to finish. I have come across one, but that was more of just like a one-time episode deal. This this show and series focuses specifically start to finish the Mobile Suit Gundam The Origin manga. Now, for those of you who may not be aware, manga is Japanese comic books. So it's still a comic book podcast. We're just jumping across the Pacific Ocean. (laughs) Um, I'm going to start out just with a little background on what Mobile Suit Gundam is. I am going to warn you that this episode will start out kind of exposition-y, backstory-y. But I'll do my best to liven it up a little bit. And my goal is that every episode will cover at least a, will cover either a single chapter or two chapters, depending on the material and whether it's more character driven, more um, 
uh, a lot more meat to dig into rather than just giant robots pew 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 pewing each other. So, without further ado, what is Gundam? Well, the Gundam franchise came from the same place that Marty McFly once said all the best things come from, Japan. Yes, Japan, the land of the rising sun, the home of anime waifus, magical girls, and giant robots. The franchise began with the anime Mobile Suit Gundam, which premiered on Japanese televisions on April 7th, 1979, and would run through roughly a year at, and with the final episode ending January 26, 1980. At the time, there were many anime that were showing giant robots, and Gundam needed something to stand out from the pack. There had to be a hook to grab viewers' attention from the transforming, superheroic-esque robots who would fight aliens and protect Earth, or who would fight aliens and protect Earth, or what is more commonly known as the super-robot genre, where the plot and characters were just window-dressing to a giant robot doing, you know, rocket punches. Which is awesome, but, you know, we want a little bit more more um, uh, meat on our plate. So... Fortunately, this anime was the brainchild of pretty much the George Lucas of anime, and I'm not talking about Miyazaki. Okay, that's the Steven Spielberg. This is the George Lucas. There's a difference. Yoshiyuki Tomino. Yoshiyuki Tomino began his career scripting storyboards and screenplays for the very first anime, Tetsuan Atom, or more commonly known in the United States as... Astro Boy. Hmm. You know, I wonder if he was responsible for the butt missiles. I mean, someone had to come up with an idea of an eight-year-old child robot shooting rockets out of its butt. I would have loved to have seen how the storyboards went on that and the planning meeting. Anyhow, we're not an Astro Boy podcast. <laughs> but cutting his teeth on a few more anime series through the remainder of the 70s, it was Gundam that would cement his legacy and permanence in the pop culture sphere of Japan to this day. How do I know this? <laughs> well, right now, and I just found out today, <laughs> you are listening to the Gundam theme as performed by the South Japanese Self-Defense for Naval Forces um, Orchestral Band. Yeah, I didn't know that. That was a thing. Um, there are cat coffee cafes that serve uh, lattes with the cream stencils in the shape of characters from Gundam available right now, a factory that has sold hundreds of millions of model kits based on the robot designs of the various series, including about the eight on my shelf right now that I own. Oh, and uh, something minor, nearly insignificant, almost not even worth talking about, but not building not one, but two life-sized one-to-one statues of the original Gundam and the main Gundam from a future series, uh, 0096, Unicorn. And these were displayed in front of a major urban mall. And I'm not talking, and when you think one-to-one statue, oh, it's what, 9 feet, 10 feet? No, these are 55-foot-tall robots. (laughs) Also, currently, they're working on a special type of plastic so they can send Two, the two main, the main Gundam from we're going to be discussing, and the antagonist's mobile suit, the 
Oh, we'll get into him later, but I don't want to spoil his name yet. Um, so that they can survive in space, orbiting above Japan during the 2020 Olympics. Yeah. Oh, and also, I, they keep trying to make giant robots move. That's how, as much as Star Trek influenced NASA for the United States, Gundam has influenced Japan. Again, as I mentioned, Gundam had to have something to stand out from the pack. Well, as I said at the time, Super Robots just did super things like Super Robot Rocket Punch and Super Laser Eye Beams. But they didn't really care about the characters. They were just there to, well, fill up some sort of 22-minute episode. Mobile Suit Gundam took the reverse. It focused on the characters, with the robot being the equivalent of a futuristic tank and how war truly works. That while everyone may believe that there's a good guys versus bad guys mentality, war is never that simple or clean, with many shades of gray, and that all of it is a tragedy. This type of storytelling would eventually be called the real robot genre keeping the story and themes more realistic and grounded, even with giant robots. So this was more Band of Brothers and less Super Friends. Working with fellow creator Hajime Yatate, and I apologize to any Japanese, I do not speak Japanese, so if I mispronounce a name, I do apologize. The two began to script the plot. Handling character designs, Yoshikazu Yasuhiko, and we'll, believe me, we'll be getting more on him in a moment, gave us our heroes and our villains. Also, for the first time ever in anime, credit was given to the person who actually designed all the giant robots and spaceships and the machinery of the Gundam universe, that mastermind and possibly insane scientist. You'll know it when you see some of these designs on... Uh, and I'll tell you where you can see them later in the show, was named Kunio Okawara. Okay, just, I'm just going to take a second here. Okawara-san, just how did you think some of your designs would actually work, let alone fly? Uh, I mean, I'm looking at you, Gun Perry. I'm looking at you really hard. I'll get into what you look like later, but between you and the Medea transport, I'm, the Medea transport was a giant box. Literally, it was just a giant box with wings. Ugh, I don't think you understood how aerodynamics worked at all. Now, I could make this episode solely about the history of Gundam. How it suffered the same fate as Star Trek and was cancelled before its time. How it went from a 50-episode series to being cancelled prematurely, but the company Sunrise being able to uh, convince the producers that they needed just a few more episodes to at least wrap up the storylines and were able to beg, borrow, and steal an extra four or five episodes to get us 43 episodes for the show. Or 42 if it was real, if you're watching the English dub, and uh, there's more on that later. If you really want to get into the themes of Gundam, uh, how it uh, works... Um, what influences, real-world influences tie into it, I recommend checking out uh, Mobile Suit Breakdowns. They go episode by episode and give you all the real-world history influences. It's very detailed. It, I, I would equate it to, like, the, it's the History Channel for Gundam fans. 
and and the, I'll be having a little plug for them later. Also, I could be talking about how the little plastic model kits I mentioned earlier and TV syndication led it to becoming not just one of the top anime franchises, but the premier anime franchise of all time with over 40 different series. And I counted, so I can say that with accuracy, dozens, if not hundreds, of manga chapter spinoffs, video games, and again, two giant robots in the middle of major metropolitan areas. But that's not the purpose of this show. Nope. This show is to cover, in my opinion, the definitive version of the original Mobile Suit Gundam. The manga, Mobile Suit Gundam, The Origin, which was written and drawn by Yoshikazu Yasuhiko himself. This manga began publication in Japan on June 25, 2001, and ran an entire decade, with the final chapter being published June 25, 2011. Yashuhiko-san took ideas from the anime, various manga that had come out since, the novelization penned by Tomino-san a year after the original anime ended, 30 years of hindsight, watercolor painting that would make Bob Ross smile, he threw them into a blender, hit the mix button, and we lucky human beings would be allowed to see the results of his genius. Oh, I can't get enough of how good this manga looks. And I have actually created a side blog that will get regular updates with each episode's release to show just how good this manga looks. And also, Yasuhiko is considered to be an art god. And I fully agree. Why? He does a basic pencil and then goes straight to inking. With no reference lines, no guidelines. And comic book fans know what a big deal that is, but for, you know, regular people, let me put that into terms we understand. Try drawing your face without using any lines to keep your eyes, nose, mouth, and ears level and see how it looks. I mean, every how-to draw book has those little reference lines. Yeah, he draws without those. It, and if we tried it, it's not a pretty sight, is it? I, I certainly have. I tried and, yeah, it's now... <laughs> Uh, in, uh, yeah, let's just say it's in the uh, compost pile. Well, Yashuhiko-san not only does that with one character, but he draws enough characters on a single page to get George Perez jealous. And that's not including the robot porn. Because every shot of a giant robot in motion, in battle, or just standing is simply breathtaking, bordering on pornographic. Then we throw in the fact that some pages are drawn and colored by watercolor paints. I'll get into that in a little bit because I've since found out every page was fully colored. That he did himself, and yeah, I don't think there's an artist alive who can do what Yashuhiko-san can. For example, the this was so special, and I found this out in later in interviews, that the magazine for Gundam the Origin wasn't in a, like a one Japan likes to put a bunch of different uh, manga issues into one big book well this got its own special book there was no additional content it was just strictly the origin and that is rare for Japan so now that I've properly gushed about the writer let's get into the meat and potatoes or actually you know would it be ramen and rice balls of this podcast my coverage will be from the Vertical Incorp 
separated English adaptations, which usually consist of 7 to 10 chapters per volume. Now, I mentioned that uh, there were only a few watercolor pages in the vertical books. That's true. There are only certain pages, which are the important story beats. They're not just pointless, that are in full color. But, for the most part, it's standard manga, black and white. Well, ComicWalker.com has begun distributing the um, manga digitally, and the first, and they're up to right now, as of this recording, the first 60 or so chapters, and a new chapter is added every month. Now, here's the kicker. Every chapter is fully colored, and it is gorgeous. I, I, I'm, not, I, I'm not even going to... You, you're going to get used to me here and say the art is gorgeous, but with with a full color, it's just breathtaking, and I would buy, I, I would pay fifty dollars for a volume of just the full color book. You know, I'd pay fifty dollars per book just to have the full color on nice glossy paper. And I'll be posting links on the companion blog to the show in the show notes. But for we've talked a lot. Let's just take a little break here. I'm going to plug a couple shows, and when we get back, and we'll begin the first chapter of Mobile Suit Gundam The Origin, Volume 1, Activation. And if you think that's a mouthful, just wait until we get to the character names. I'm pretty sure some of them were just random sounds made by things Tomino heard on the way to work that day. We'll be right back. Greetings, podcast listener. Do you like... Or maybe... How about Tatsuya! Or In the year 1999, an abandoned alien battle fortress crash-landed on the planet Earth. Our most brilliant scientists and engineers spent the next 10 years reconstructing the damaged ship and studying its highly advanced space technology called Robotech. Do you remember Our Star Blazers? Or this? The year is after Colony 195. As the world constantly changes in the chaotic era, there are two mobile suits that could turn humans into the ultimate weapon. The Wing Zero and the Epion. Or maybe even this. After the desire for blood rules all, the only hope left is the one they call D. Or this. Gene, grappler ships dead ahead! It wouldn't be fun otherwise. Let's do it! Or... If Cardus is allowed to be reborn, she'll destroy Marmo as well as Lodos. Or have you seen the latest episode of... And just like that, everything changed. At that terrible moment, in our hearts, we knew... Home was a pen. Humanity... If you answered yes to any of these questions, then you should check out Anime Freaks, hosted by Dr. Bill Robinson and me, Gene Hendricks. Anime Freaks is a monthly podcast covering all things anime. It is available at 2TrueFreaks.com and on iTunes under 2TrueFreaks Presents Anime Freaks. I'm Captain Benjamin Sisko. Welcome to Deep Space Nine. Red alert! All crew members report to battle stations! Red alert. Shields up. What shields? You start fleet officers! Now start acting like it! Oh, it's just Garrett. Plain, simple, Garrett. 
decks. We might have just discovered the first stable wormhole known to exist. The wormhole does bring them our way, doesn't it? Everyone wants a piece of the new frontier. This will shortly become a leading center of commerce and of scientific exploration. Starfleet, one of our most important posts. Quite a motley crew you've assembled here, Benji. Listen to The Prophets, a Deep Space Nine podcast. And here are your hosts, Andrew Leyland and Paul Spataro. Bloody hell. Oh, I love a woman in uniform. Only on TwoTrueFreaks.com. And we're back. So, Mobile Suit Gundam The Origin, I will say this, it, manga makes it a lot easier to do all these cover credits because there's really just one person that is credited. Mobile Suit Gundam The Origin is written and illustrated by Yoshikazu Yasuhiko with the original story by Yoshiyuki Tomino and Hajime Yatate with mechanical designs by Kunio Okarara. It was published by Kadokawa Shoten with an English translation published Produced by Vertical Incorporated. Volume 1. Activation. Humanity had been emigrating excess populations to space for over half a century. Hundreds of enormous space colonies floated in orbit around the Earth. On the terraformed inner walls of the great cylinders, people found new homes. Millions of space colonists lived there, had children, and died. The year, Universal Century 0079. Side 3, the colony furthest from the Earth, declared itself the Principality of Zeon and began to wage a war for independence from the Earth Federation. In scarcely over a month of fighting, Principality and Federation together slaughtered half of humanity's total population. All men grew to fear their own deeds. The war entered a stalemate, and eight months went by. Whew! Okay, let's break this down a little bit. After some extensive research, i.e. Google and fan wikis, the internet is your friend, kids. It can be your best friend. I've tried to find some point as to when exactly the Universal Century begins in our timeline. Well, as with most science fiction franchises that last decades, there is a lot of conflicting information, with even the official Gundam website posting no less than six different years marking the start of what's known as the Universal Century. I'm going to base my figure on an early draft by Tomino himself, as it's the closest to the original creator's intent, and state that the Universal Century began in the year 2045. So hey, in 26 years, we'll be living in space! Thanks, Elon Musk! Assuming you haven't gone completely insane and sunk Tesla. Then again, we were supposed to have flying cars and hoverboards by 2015, but I blame that on Doc Brown not being around to invent the technology or teaching Stephen Hawking back in the 80s and 90s what he needed to do. So the question is, though, what does the term Universal Century mean? Simply put, that when mankind started living in space en masse rather than just a few astronauts, 
a new calendar was developed, marking another major turning point in humanity. Though I wonder how that went over with some of the more, uh, how do I put this delicately, uh, religiously inclined segments of the population, considering what Anno Domini is actually referencing. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure that that didn't go over well. <clears throat> well, you might be asking yourself, now, what are these space colonies and when do I sign up for my ticket to them? Well, imagine a giant cylinder about four miles around. It's 22 miles long, with three large rectangles placed roughly a third of the way apart to help reflect, refract sunlight into the colony. Now, inside are massive environments replicating everything from tropical to desert-like conditions, and apparently people from the United States Westerners really didn't want anything better when they moved to space. <laughs> we'll get into that later, but let's just say you don't mess with Texas. With massive areas for agriculture, urban areas, and everything in between. Each colony could hold hundreds of thousands, if not millions, of inhabitants. And, as the prologue mentioned, there are hundreds of these colonies. Now, groups of colonies are labeled as what's known as a side. So when it said side three, that meant a large group of colonies, almost like a, a, a country. With there currently being six total sides, with the seventh currently under construction at the start of the story. Now, after doing some digging, I found out that humanity's population in the Gundam universe had reached roughly 11 billion people. Now, 9 billion people are living in space at the start of the story. But, but let's just think about that for a second. Every man, woman, and child living today would be in space, and then there's still another billion to go. That's a lot of people in space. Almost seems like it could lead to some minor issues between those living on Earth versus those living in space. You know, it's kind of one of the major themes of Gundam, how humanity loses track of its roots and uh, <clears throat> turns into space Nazis. We'll get into that later. Our story begins in the year Universal Century 0079, or roughly in the year 2124 by our reckoning, with a war raging between the Earth Federation and the Principality of Xeon, or again, more simply, Earth versus Space. However, <laughs> we get to the horror of this war pretty darn quick. Four pages in, and we find out that half of the total population of humanity has been killed. That's half. That's five and a half billion people dead in only the first month of the war, with Xeon being responsible for most of it. They completely destroy three entire sides. We'll get into why later, I think. They drop a space colony onto Australia. Yeah, they... they as a, instead of dropping a nuke, they dropped one of those 22-mile-long... You know, something roughly the size of an asteroid onto Earth, which destroyed 16% of the continent of Australia... Wiping out pretty much the entire population of the uh, living there, by the way, which caused massive geologic shifts throughout Earth, environmental disasters, and how it avoided a complete nuclear winter, I have no idea. But as a result of that, both sides are pretty shocked by finding out hey, if uh, we 
don't do something pretty darn quick, we're gonna finish that last half off before spring. So both the Federation and Xeon enter a state of a shooting Cold War, where despite the occasional border skirmish and raid, neither side is really making a push for territory or a large military victory due to both, again, dropping a colony on a continent and um, military losses through the begin beginning through parts of the war. We'll get to that later because <laughs> we will be talking about the space versions of Pearl Harbor and Midway a little later. And I know this because one of the volume titles is literally the entire battle. So there's a lot to get into there. So eight months pass, and now we're in September 0079, where the story truly begins. After a beautiful, I'm going to break out the thesaurus and stop saying gorgeous and beautiful, shot of the earth and moon, an armored spacesuit comes into frame, and we meet the main reason that Xeon has not only been able to hold its own against the vastly superior forces of the Earth Federation, but has been kicking the Federation's tail in every major engagement they've fought. Ladies and gentlemen, I present to you the MS-06 Zaku-2, a 57-foot-tall walking engine of destruction capable of high-speed maneuvers that leaves the Federation's main force of slow-moving battleships unable to even approach it. Let's think about it this way. The Federation uses tanks, while Xeon uses man-shaped fighter planes in space, and you can sort of get the idea. The Zaku is a very versatile battle platform. It's as agile and uh, well-armed as a fighter plane in space, while serves as the ultimate form of a tank in Earth gravity. Also, it can jump a couple hundred feet on land, so let's glue some rockets onto those M1 Abrams, boys! I've seen elephants fly, now I want two-ton battle vehicles in the low orbit. Uh, to be honest, the Zaku does get a little bit of a redesign in the manga versus the original anime, with the biggest change being the rifle. The anime's version had a round ammo container on top of the rifle, which may look really cool and menacing, while the manga version's rifle ammo is now contained in an ammo belt on the underside of the gun leading to its waist. I won't critique Yasuhiko-san much on his art, but this did take a little way from the original menacing look of the Zaku 2, and I much rather prefer the anime's version. Panning out, we find out our little Zaku isn't alone. Oh no, 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 no. He brought five other friends to play. Flying solely on inertia because, hey, you know, space. The mobile suits are heading to an unfinished space colony named Side 7. But, Aaron, you said that only groups of space colonies were called Sides. Uh, yes, I know, and we don't see any other colonies, so, um... Let's just go with it. I, I really don't have an answer for you. Landing on the colony's surface and finding a pretty convenient Zaku-sized airlock, the team enter the colony. Upon arrival, they hear a massive siren going off throughout the colony, with most of the populace gone. One pilot, Sergeant John Bullseye Ash, panics and thinks they've been spotted. His CEO, Master Sergeant Levi Denham, tells him to relax and that the siren is only announcing a ship currently docking with the station. A ship 
docking in a completely evacuated, no one able to lay a prying eye on area of the colony that is supposedly undergoing massive construction, yet nothing ever seems to get done. Huh. Nope. Nothing suspicious there. Moving on. So, uh, we turn to said docking spaceship, and uh, how can I best describe this in an audio format? Take a Sphinx's lower body, glue some aircraft carrier parts in the middle and top, and add some large wings, and that is pretty much the visual image of this story's Enterprise. Now, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, what kind of name would such an important ship have? Among the Falcons, the Enterprises, and the Serenities, what name would permanently sear itself into science fiction pop culture? Well, are you ready? It's White Base. Huh, um, saying it out loud, it sounds more like the paint you use to prime your walls and not a command ship, but I didn't invent it, so, uh, so let's just move on. Yeah, let's just move on. Apparently, there was also some behind-the-scenes shenanigans involving the original design of White Base being salvaged from an unused design for a different anime, and I think Yashuhiko is poking a bit of fun at it, because we have this deck officer commenting, oh, I can't believe it escaped our gravitational field. Look at this thing, it's unwieldy. Future ships in Gundam would be based on this design, but a lot more sleeker. More Lamborghini, less Cinderblock. But Aaron, you're probably asking yourself right about now, isn't the name of your show that I'm graciously giving you roughly an hour of my life listening to named White Base Chronicles? Yes. Yes, you are. Just because I mostly like the ship doesn't mean I like the name that much. Though, thanks to wikis, I think something happens later on to address this issue. Side note, if you've read the novelization of Mobile Suit Gundam written by Tomino, there's a lot of things he changed. One of those was that White Base became the ship's class and not the name, with the actual ship name becoming Pegasus. I actually do think that's a lot better, and do recommend checking out the three-book novelization that you can find in an omnibus for about normal price of a regular paperback, but just be prepared that if you are familiar with the original anime at all, uh, things don't exactly line up the way you remember. Take Earth, the place where the majority of the show occurs. Uh, they never get to it. The entire story takes place solely in space. And believe it or not, that's not the biggest change. But I won't go any further into that, because that's not what this story's about. I may tool around with a future bonus episode discussing the novelization in more detail, but let's just stick with one printer work for of this story for now. Inside the ship, we meet two characters of varying importance. The first, Dr. Tam Ray, the inventor of the Gundam. And if you're wondering just how important he is to the story since, you know, he built the thing the manga is named for, all I'll say is that he's pretty much the Raditz of Mobile Suit Gundam. If you get that reference, you know what I'm talking about. The other is a 19-year-old soldier freshly transferred from the front lines and becomes one of the most important characters in all of Mobile Suit Gundam. Ladies and gentlemen, children of all ages, I give you the green-haired purveyor of justice, the middle manager of freedom, Bright Noah! Right now, young Mr. Noah is just acting as an assistant to Dr. Ray, but trust me, he gets very important in the not-too-distant future. The two discuss the current state of the war and how Dr. Ray is looking forward to seeing his son 
and how tragic that kids as young as 15, which coincidentally is the same age as his son, are being sent to the front lines. We call that foreshadowing, by the way. And how Dr. Ray feels that once his creation becomes mass-produced into large numbers, the war will quickly end so kids, like his son, won't ever have to fight. A few things here. First, to end war, you're building a better gun. I'm sure the UC's version of the NRA would be proud of you, Dr. Ray. Second, remember when people thought that well, let's just pick a new and more destructive weapon throughout history and how it would end war, and uh, how did that turn out? Third, the only picture we see of Amaro, our main protagonist, who we haven't even been introduced to yet, it looks like it was taken by a dashboard camera of the car that was about to run him over. Seriously, if his eyes could get any less bug-eyed, then they might actually fit in his skull. Cutting to White Base's bridge, we're informed by her skipper, Captain Paulo Redshirt Cassius, that they've been followed by a Zeon ship, which uh, we as the readers could surmise since those Zakus had to come from somewhere, right? But that due to the Treaty of Antarctica, which is kind of uh, a new Geneva Convention, which was signed shortly after the uh, stalemate of the war was reached, and it basically forbid the use of things like nuclear weapons, biological weapons, and massive space colonies being dropped on you. Uh, funnily enough, I'm pretty sure Xeon uses all of those when this war started, and we'll get into that in future episodes. Also, really, who would even enforce this? We only ever see two militaries in the story, and it's not like there's a neutral third party who could say, hey, stop that. So this is pretty much an unenforceable gentleman's agreement between everyone, and uh, I'm sure no one will ever break it. No. But because of the treaty, the Xeon cruiser is unable to approach Side 7, which is neutral, on paper at least. But White Base could approach since it's considered officially, on paper, as a civilian supply ship and not an official military ship. I cannot understate just how important this little sentence is. In the original anime, there was a massive question during roughly the first half of the show as to whether or not the crew of White Base were civilians or part of the actual military. Even Xeon commanders would state that their uniforms looked something like regular Federation uniforms, but something was off about them. When we would see them with regular Federation troops, none of their uniforms were what the Federation uniforms were. So knowing now that this is because White Base is not a part of the military, again, on paper, it helps to clear up a big question mark for future events. We cut back to the neighborhood in Side 7, where a teenage girl is running to a home trying to get its sole occupant's attention. Well, she's not having much luck because said occupant is currently hacking into his father's secure military database and reading the Earth Federation's most highly classified and super-secret project for what I can only assume is kicks. The young woman bursts into the home trying to tell our young hacker friend that, hey, there's an evacuation alarm going off right next to your house. How did you not know this? And we also see the standard trope of the girl next door crushing on Oblivious Protagonist because we find out she's been making him meals, tidying up his house, and pretty much doing everything short of stripping him and hog-tying him to the bed to ride him like a rodeo bull 
but hey, he has no idea. The next character we meet is the official mascot of Sunrise Entertainment and is the Gundam equivalent of R2-D2. Ladies and gentlemen, Haro, the bouncing ball robot that was cool 30 years before BB-8. And thanks to our little robot friend, we find out the girl's name is Frobo, your average girl next door with her brown hair and a nice little bob, and um, nothing really spectacular, but, you know, she's cute. And now I can finally reveal our hacker's name, Amuro Ray, boy genius. Your standard 15-year-old nerd who spends way more time indoors over a circuit board than outdoors throwing a football, his hair's in a nice auburn afro because, hey, it was the 70s, and, well, nothing too special about him. Yet. <laughs> finally, realizing that there actually is an outside world, Frawl finally gets Amuro moving so they can head to a safer location. While waiting for Amuro to get dressed and meet her outside, we are introduced to another of our supporting cast, Hayato Kobayashi. A four-foot-tall dude with a twelve-foot-tall chip on his shoulder. Frabo asks Hayato why he didn't do anything to get Amuro moving since they're, you know, next-door neighbors and all, and really, Hayato couldn't care less. Why? I have no idea. Um, he just mentioned, well, things have gone downhill since, you know, the Braves moved in. I don't like that boy. Uh, Hayato, you're, you're 15 and 4 feet. I don't think your voice should be that deep. I don't care. He's also a bit of a conspiracy nut, wondering just what a military scientist would be doing living next door and working at a construction site on a neutral space colony. Oh, little Hayato, if you only knew how right you are to be afraid. If you only knew. Amuro pulls up in a bright red future car that goes three times faster than a normal future car because it's bright red. If you get the joke, kudos, but don't spoil it for anyone else, okay? Hey, weren't we dealing with a military recon squad driving giant robots at the beginning of this story? Well, let's go check on them. Having broken into the colony proper, the six suits begin breaking up into two squads of three and two with the third member, Corporal Kato Slender, staying behind to act as rear guard and lookout. Sergeant Ash asks that if they find the thing they're looking for, do they have permission to engage, and the squad is quickly told that no, they're only on a recon mission and not on a search and destroy. Pay attention to that plot point, as we will revisit that next episode. So we follow Master Sergeant Levi Denim and Blue Jean Zakus as they enter the sealed-off construction site of the colony. Despite outward appearances to untrained civilians, Denim's keen eye can easily spot the military fortifications in within. As they continue on, they come across a field of destroyed mobile suits, and we reach one of the biggest divergences of the manga from the anime so far, as we see destroyed corpses of gun tank and gun cannon units throughout the site. Now, in the original anime, the gun tank, which basically means you take the top half of an anthropomorphic robot and glue it to the body of a tank, and a gun cannon, which is a more boxy and less sleek and uh, less developed looking version of the Gundam, kind of like Gundam 0.5. But these were developed by the Federation as supporting units for the Gundam and hadn't been seen before by anyone. The origin has the gun tank being the first real mobile suit in development, and we'll see more of that later if the animated OVA based off this manga is any indication, with the gun cannon being developed a little later. 
My guess here, and this is entirely my theory, is that Xeon used concepts developed with the gun cannon and further improved the concept with the Zaku-1, which we'll see that bad boy later, and leading into the Zaku-2. So to help break this down to base tax, the Federation may have invented the technology, but while they were content to really keep it at, say, the biplane era of flight, Xeon invested in it and went to not only the Messerschmitt Zero level of development, but were pushing it to the jet age, and the Federation would pay dearly for this mistake. One other important thing to note here, the two Xeon soldiers see damage on the mobile suits that is caused by intense beam weapons fire and state that there is nothing in Xeon's arsenal that comes close to it. This little statement that can be easily dismissed, and I'll admit I even dismissed it the first time I did the notes for the show, but it is important to note. And this allows the Gundam to steal, <laughs> I mean homage, one of the greatest weapons in all of space opera. Here's a hint. Denim receives an emergency signal by Sergeant Ash, only for his transmission to be interrupted by a burst of gunfire. They return fire with Denim and Jean rushing to reinforce them. Sergeant Ash's team open fire with everything they have, destroying equipment, sending dirt and debris flying, and leaving a bright plume of smoke. Someone asks the age-old question of, Hey, did we get him? Audience, say it with me. You're kidding, right? As the dust dissipates, a dark figure slowly approaches the smoke. Its steps thundering. Defensive shield raised. Gun at the ready. The Federation's newest weapon approaches the three Zakus. The Zakus resume firing, but the new mobile suit just keeps coming at them and coming at them like a masked slasher at a two summer camp. We cut to the last page of the story with a glorious one-page shot of our main mobile suit. Ladies and gentlemen, I give you the Mobile Suit Gundam RX-79-1! Wait, what? That? That's not right. That that doesn't even look right, either. The Gundam's model number is RX-79-2. I know this. I have enough models and sticker sheets to know this for a fact. What's this one business? Uh, and why does he look slightly different? I don't really know, but he looks great. And he is ready to show Xeon just what the Federation has been building under their noses and kick some Zaku metal butt. I hope Sergeant Ash's team remembered to sign those life insurance policies before heading out on their mission. And this is how you do a manga cliffhanger. And I'm grinning like a schoolgirl at her first boy band concert. Whew. That was... <laughs> Whew. That was some start. But don't worry, friends. It's about to... Get real, because next time on White Base Chronicle. Whoa, what was that? I suddenly turned British and completely sound different. <laughs> uh, don't worry, folks. That's just a big shout out to my pal Andy Leyland. I uh, was completely surprised when I asked. You know, something's just missing from my show, and yeah, that was it. I need a British person. So thanks again, Andy. I appreciate it. And we see just what a Gundam is capable of. Amro's dad is a jerk. Frabo goes flying, and things get a bit breezy inside Seven. All this and more on the next pulse-pounding episode of White Base Chronicles. Who will survive?
You have been listening to White Base Chronicles, a Tangents Abound presentation. This podcast is 100% free and no money is made in either the production or distribution of this podcast. All sound clips used in this podcast are owned by the respective copyright holders and are used for review purposes only, and no infringement is intended. Want to see just what I'm talking about for yourself? Check out whitebasechronicles.blogspot.com where you can see panels from the manga that I've uploaded that tie into each episode, usually captioned with my, quote, witty commentary. Want to follow along with me? Well, each volume can be found at various book retailers for about the price of a standard trade paperback, or for free at comic-walker.com. Just click the language button to switch to English, and Gundam the Origin is the first listing. The site updates one chapter monthly, and each chapter is in full color, which makes this a steal, and I would recommend you dropping them a line to thank them for letting us see this for free. And who knows, by the time the show ends, we may have the entire series available. Care to drop me a line about the show or grab the digital equivalent of a torch and pitchfork? You can send emails to whitebasechronicles at gmail.com or at Twitter at ahenley2011. Thanks for listening to my show, and please check out the other shows that can be found on the Two True Freaks Network. There's such a wide variety of geekdom covered that I'm sure there's something out there that tickle your fan bones. Take care, my friends. And in case I don't see you, good morning, good evening, and good night. Oh, arriving on white bridge. <laughs> oh, arriving. Oh, arriving. Why am I having trouble with this? Open. We are up. We cut to White Base's bridge, where we're informed by her skipper. You can do this. Arriving. Arriving. Why can I not say that word? This will be a fun blooper.